Welcome to episode two of On the Shoulders of Giants. I am Dave Griffith, and as always, I am joined with Max Krug, the Swami of Scheduling. Uh, today, we have a very exciting episode. Uh, we're we're going to talk about productivity. Uh, we're going to continue on our production bonus example from last week, and we're going to ask Mac the, the tough questions of what are the kind of the, the, the big issues and the first steps that he works on uh, with most facilities that he talks to. Um, and so, Max, with that, like, let's jump right in. What, what it, we talked about a lot about productivity in the first episode. Uh, can, can you, like, how do you define productivity? I imagine you talk about it extensively. Yes. Yeah, so productivity, if we look at the dictionary definition or the generic definition, it's getting more outputs with the same level of input. So if we can measure a process, we can measure a system, we can measure what its output is. If we use the same inputs and we get more out of the process or more out of the system, that's improved productivity. So theory constraints that I use a lot is the methodology. We wanna make sure we define the system correctly because the danger that we run into is that we do sub-optimization. So early in my career, I would focus on doing a bunch of process improvements. Like, look, we got more pieces through this process or we got, we completed more through this process with the same resources. So productivity went up. Yep. Productivity of that process went up, but did the business performance improve? And a lot of times I see all these, you know, process improvements that are happening in the organization don't translate into business improvements. Sometimes they actually hurt business performance. So that's another time to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But we want to look at for each unit of input, are we getting more output from the system? And we say system from the business. So is the business mm -hmm. performance getting better? If not, then it wasn't a productivity improvement. Yeah. I, I love that. And so I was laughing as you were talking about sometimes we'll do a attempted process optimization on a single machine or line, and it turns into a net negative uh, for the system or, or the business. And, and I'm laughing because I think most people that have worked in systems integration probably have done that, What certainly unintentionally, but I think we've always gone through the process of being like, hey, I bet we can go track some data and increase OEE on this line and by increasing OEE on a line, we, we cause larger problems uh, within the entirety of the organization. And, and th that, is, that, is, that is the concept of like the, the constraints. Like, so we talked about theory of constraints a little bit last episode, that that is the concept of understanding what your constraint is, right? Then going to alleviate the constraint and, but, but having the knowledge that there will be, we'll shift that either upstream or downstream of the, the current constraint. Is, is that correct, Max? Yes. Okay. And I, I think that it goes back to the, the system thinking mindset. And, and I, I like that a lot. And uh, as a bit of a teaser on next episode, Max and I are going to go through what we're calling it Deming's 14 points. And we're going to kind of compare and contrast many of the different thought processes on system or non-system thinking that we find uh, that we find it in this. So, 
Th that is productivity. Let let's go back to the example, right? So they're a it's a manufacturing company that you've done a significant amount of work with. You said that they were push uh, with a large number of dollars of whip in there. And so last example, we were talking about how they had a production bonus uh, per kind of work groups or work cells, and we've changed it to focus directly on the shipping and you've helped them increase that bonus three, two and a half to three X uh, kind of, uh, from when you started to now. Um, can, can we dig a little bit more into that and kind of talk about what are the first steps that you normally work with, either with this company or, or with groups in general? What are kind of the biggest issues you find? Yeah. Um, if we, again, using the system thinking, when I go and look at an organization, the first thing I'm looking at is what's limiting them from getting more performance. So are they lacking sales? So they do they have enough capacity to meet the demand? And do they have more capacity than what there is demand? So is it a sales issue or is it a operational issue where we got more sales and we don't have enough capacity to meet the sales? And a lot of times if I go in the situation where they have more sales than they have capacity, the first thing I hear is like, we don't have enough people. We need more resources. We're lacking resources. We can't find good people. So if I hear those complaints, I know that it's most likely a operational issue, not a sales issue. So I'm starting at the high level and say, okay, is it a sales issue or operational issue? Because how we attack it's gonna be different. But if I hear we don't have enough resources we're lacking resources, we can't find good people, it's most likely an operational issue. So those are one of the indicators. The first thing I listen for when I hear people start complaining about their issues. So if it's an operational issue, then I start looking at what, what we talked about is the inventory and the work in process. So if there's significant work in process, I know that there's hidden capacity. The question is how do we expose it and how do we leverage that hidden capacity to get more out the door? Okay. Now, now let me ask you a question, Max. Is and I feel like that this is probably something that most people are going to ask or, or think about. Is there ever an instance in which work in progress is good? Like, is there ever an instance in which we should strive to have lots of work in progress? And I ask because most people who work at a facility the facility probably has a, a good amount of, of work in progress, or maybe they, they store a bunch of finished goods on the shelf, but they probably have a good amount of, uh, of work in progress. So is there ever an instance in which we're like, yes, we, we must have, you know, three weeks or 12 weeks of work in progress available? That's a great question. So the WIP is a function of the, how much variation there is in sales demand and how much variation there is in process. An organization can't operate with zero WIP. Mm -hmm. Okay, so WIP is a shock absorber between supply and demand. Having excessive WIP creates a lot of management attention on trying to figure out which order should be worked on or what work should be worked on and what shouldn't be worked on. Having too little WIP causes the opposite, but a lot of management attention on working on the right stuff. So there's a real 
wide safe zone of the appropriate amount of work in process to it's used as a shock absorber between supply and demand to absorb that shock, but not having excessive and not having too little. Okay. Most companies I work with, they have excessive work in process. There's too much whip. I've been only thinking one company that had too little whip. They've gone to the other extreme of too little whip and they're constantly expediting every order through. Okay. Interesting. So there is a huge safe zone of where the system will be stable. And so I don't really have a rule of thumb. It's a function of how much value added time it takes to make that product or service. And we do some rough calculations about this is where you need to be. Okay. No, that, that, that I, I imagine that there's a mathematical formula that we would put through. And then there's a kind of a plus minus for that. But, uh, but, but so generally. I, so I have the, what I call a 15% rule. Mm-hmm. So the 15% rule, I tell people you're not going to find it in a book any place because I haven't written it yet. So what I do is I take the touch time of the product or service that you're doing. So the touch time is the actual conversion time to make that product or service. And I want the lead time to touch time ratio to be 15%. Okay, so we take the touch time of that product or service, we divide by 0.15, that's how many hours we should allow for that work to get done start to finish. Interesting. With that 15% rule, it gets, every case I've used that, it gets stability every time. So it works every time. Now we can calculate what the current ratio is where you can take your, you know, your demand rate and your touch time and calculate what's the touch time to lead time ratio mm-hmm. in the current state. And most times it's under 5%. So the touch time oh, to lead wow. time ratio is less than 5%. Okay. So whatever that ratio is, if it's 5%, we're basically going to cut whip by two thirds. That's a huge if cut. Have, if they have 13 weeks, which we had in this company, almost 14 weeks, we're going to cut it by two thirds. That's going to get us stability. Okay. So now we're down to about two weeks. Okay. So it's about nine day lead time right now, start to finish. And then when you look at that, when you, when you look at reducing whip, most of the time, is there like a heavy scheduling aspect in there? Yeah. Uh, and do you want to talk through? Uh, and everyone is going to, to learn about all of Max's rules. Max likes, Max, would you like to tell everyone the joke of the one rule you have when you work with a company? Yeah. So if you talk to any of our customers, when we start a implementation, we tell them there's only one rule. And if you ask any of our customers, they'll tell you what the one rule is. The one rule is we follow the rules. Yes. And uh, that's probably because uh, when Max talks to customers, he's like, these, he doesn't want to say these are like the 482 rules that I've come up with that we must always follow. Uh, But, but I I feel like as 
continue to go through this show, people will get very familiar with, with Max's um, Max's rules. And maybe that's maybe that's the name of Max's forthcoming book. Max's yeah. rules to to solve everything or, or something rule. like but the, the one rule. Yes. The, the one rule. Follow all the rules. And then each of the next thousand pages are each devoted to a rule. I uh, I love that, Max. OK, so. So I actually uh, so, learned that from Dr. Deming. So okay. what Dr. Deming taught me was from his readings, you know, the readings that I did, he had a statement. He said, do, do a process consistently, even if it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I said, why, why did he say that? So of course our standing on the shoulders of giants, that's mm-hmm. what we're talking about. These people that were these, unbelievable influencers came up with these concepts and when they say something you got to step back and say why did they say that so he said do a process consistently even if it's wrong so the reason he said that is because if you do it consistently you can understand the cause and effect between the action and the outcome then you can correct it but if you're doing it inconsistently all the time you can't make the connection between the cause and the effect so when we say there's only one rule follow the rules we need processes done consistently with Mm -hmm. zero exception when the process is done consistently with zero exception and we don't get the effect we're looking for then one of our assumptions of our process isn't correct Mm -hmm. which one is it we find it and we re- recalibrate that logic. Absolutely. And and I think that that's important. And I believe we touched on it in the first episode, Max, where we've talked about kind of the need of adoption, right? And we have to have everyone do the process the same way. Every facility I have ever walked into who had issues, who wanted, you know, one of the key things they wanted to do was be able to understand the set points of all of their different machinery because every operator comes in and they, they kind of tweak it, right? Like Joe yep. thinks this runs better plus 5%. And then yep. Steve comes in and he turns it down two notches. We don't know that what first shift guy is. doesn't know what he's doing. Yep. The, the first shift guy doesn't know what he's doing. And then at some point, three weeks, six months, a year from now, our set points are so out of whack even if we've collected data on them, the data is junk. I, I maybe seven or eight years ago uh, uh, scoped out a project in which I was putting biometric sensors on all on like, I don't know, like 500 CNC machines because that was their big issue is that everyone did it slightly different. Or I think they were extruder machines, like plastic extruder machines because everyone did it slightly different. And then we've got three different types of machines and 12 different generations across the three different types. And the, the whole thing was a mess. And so I think that boils down to kind of the adoption and we have to commit to doing it one way, all of us. And if we commit to doing it one way, we will eventually get to the solution. But if I do it one way and then Max comes in is like, oh, Dave doesn't know what he's talking about. He's going to do it a different way. And then, then Hezzy would come in on the third shift and yell at all of us for doing it the way that he or for doing it different ways than, than he had thought. Um, that is, you're never going to be able to find the constraint. You're never going to be able to figure out the actual issues if yeah. everyone is all over the place and you don't have a standardized process. So I have two quick stories around that. So early in my career, I company asked me to come in and help. So they had all types of problems in their engineering department. So 
So I said, okay, let's map out the process. And then we'll use that to, as a basis to understand, you know, what we need to do different to get better results. Mm -hmm. So anybody that's listening, you can do this in your own organization, take a group of people from a department, say, let's, let's just map out the process. So I start mapping the process, right? So one engineer told me, oh, I do this, I do this, and I do this. And the second guy goes, I don't do that. <laughs> I do it this way. The third guy goes, I don't do it either one of those ways. I do it this way. So, so I realized real early, it's like, okay, it's not so simple, mm-hmm. right? There's multiple ways that people are doing it. No wonder why we have problems. And I also work with a construction company and same thing. So I started to look at, you know, the process of building their houses and we start with the, you know, foundation and we started to get to framing and they have three guys that do framing. And, you know, I'm trying to get details into a project plan of the framing process. And the one guy says, well, those other guys don't know how to frame. I'm the best framer. Okay. What do you do? So he tells me what he does. And I go to the next guy. Well, those other two, I'm a better framer than those two. So I started to realize that there's just huge variation in the way the process is being performed. So the one guy, he said, well, my method's better because I use less material. It's a little bit more labor, but I use less material. The second guy says, well, I use more material, but I have less labor. So I went back and the third guy had a different criteria. So I went back to the owner. I said, well, first thing we got to do is define what's the career criteria we're going to measure against and then measure everybody against that criteria because everybody's measuring their performance based on different criteria. We're never going to get consensus because there can only be one best way. So we got to define what is the best way and then everybody does it the best way. We follow the rule. We follow the rule. I love it, Max. Okay. That makes sense. And then we we were talking about scheduling. So I, but by talking about, you know, follow the way, right? This is the way. Um, You, you have a scheduling like thought. And so most companies that you work with probably schedule, everyone's schedule is slightly different. And then people are expediting and then other people are trying to expedite on top of those. And that just creates a mess. So most of the time when you come in, do you kind of help reset the scheduling process and you like go through and measure the amount of time it takes for each process within each work cell? Yes. So most companies schedule according to a push system. So most ERP systems are push mm-hmm. basement methodology, which means we're going to release work to make sure that we keep all our resources busy. Mm-hmm. And also we want to minimize costs. So we want to run bigger lots and bigger batches to minimize setup time and to keep utilization of resources high. So that's the basic philosophy behind any ERP or MRP system. Mm-hmm. And then they're trying to predict based on the route when a work should arrive at each station. So they typically are doing schedules by workstation. Okay, here's your schedule for today. It's like, okay, half the jobs on my schedule aren't even at my workstation. The other ones right at the bottom of the schedule are there. So I guess I'll work on those. And then we get misalignment between what's needed and what's being worked on. Mm-hmm. So we try to switch to a pull-based methodology, which means we only release work 
according to the pace. And we start out really with customer demand. So whatever the customer demand is, we're going to release work at that pace. Okay. And we're going to use the 15% rule. So how soon should we release it or how late should we release it? We take the touch time of that work order, divide by the 0.15. That's how many hours before it's due, we're going to release it. So that creates the pull. And now, so, now so I, don't I, release I, jobs early. Our goal isn't to keep everybody busy. The goal is to produce to customer demand. So okay. what you'll find is you'll, if you look in your organizations, there's three types of orders. Ones that have been released too early, ones that have been released about on time, and ones that should have been released that haven't been released. So we need to recalibrate that. So the first step is to recalibrate that and stop, freeze the jobs that have been released too early, continue working on the ones that have been released correctly, and get the ones that should have been released expedited and get them released. But what I've seen is, you know, oh, we don't have materials. Yeah, we use the materials to produce a job that's not needed. So we've stolen the materials for job a and released it early and we really need it for job b that should have been released last week because we're trying to be efficient and use of our material so why why is this logic kind of diametrically opposed to most erp or mrp systems how do how do we get to the point where we're trying to utilize all of our resources in a we'll just call it theoretically inefficient way as opposed to ship the customer in. How did we get to that point? That's a good question. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand. I think it was all driven off the cost mentality to minimize okay. cost. So our goal is to minimize cost. If we minimize cost, we're going to maximize profitability. Okay. To minimize cost, right? We have all these assets. We need to make sure that the assets are being properly utilized. I think that's sort of the mindset. So if we have all these investment in assets and resources. If we keep them busy, we're productive. Mm -hmm. Okay. So keeping everybody productive makes the system productive. But when I started to learn about theory constraints, it's like, no, that's not correct mindset. Okay. I, I think we're going to have to have a much longer conversation of push versus pull um, when, when we get in there. But like, so, so let's let's wrap this up. So as, as a bit of a recap, um, most facilities that Max works with is including the production facility that he has nearly tripled production bonus and productivity bonus. Um, they had to significantly reduce WIP. And we figure out WIP by Max's 15% rule. Um, and so we, we take the amount of touch times to the amount of time it, something spends within machines. We divide it by 0.15 and that's when we should release it. And then to figure out the amount of touch time, we, we, we go and we build a scheduling. And when we go and we build the scheduling, are we physically, um, are, are we physically observing the amount of machine, machining time that every machine or workstation takes for every single part and then extrapolating that out? Or is there, is, is there an extrapolation that we can make? No, so we create product families. So if we say, okay, parts of this style run through these process steps, you know, so in the value stream concept of product families, 
and we make some general assumptions about, well, this one's bigger than that one. This one's, you know, two hours. So that's probably two and a half hours, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's about good enough. You don't yeah. need to be perfect. Okay. I mean, I had one company that had no idea what the times were. The routes were totally yeah. inaccurate. So I walked with the supervisor. Okay, this job, how long on this machine? Oh, about 30 minutes. Okay, on this machine, about how long? They did batches of like 20 units mm-hmm. at a time. Uh, it's about hour and a half on that machine. Okay, on this machine, uh, 45 minutes. So I took that. It was good enough. Okay. <laughs> so okay. we don't have good data. Ask people, get their opinion, and make sure you're clear on what you're asking for. So like when I put the first yeah. piece up on this job and run all 20 pieces, how long before the last piece comes off? Oh, mm-hmm. about 30 minutes. Okay. We're not including setup, right? None of that's in the, it's the touch time, the pure process time. Okay. I, I, I like that. And then we are able to extrapolate out kind of everything that we need once we put those product families together, including, and this is the key point, the amount of lead time that we tell a customer and when we should release the product. So if we say the lead time to a customer is 15 days, we almost certainly aren't releasing it, you know, now and having it run 15 days. There's some amount of of buffer in there. Okay, so so that that makes sense. And then then we synchronize everybody to that. So now engineering, purchasing, everybody's synchronized to that because the release date is the due date for the office. So whatever office functions need to be done, they need to be done before the release date. So programming, tooling, purchasing, engineering, everybody's synchronized to that release date. Now we get synchronization through the whole organization based on customer demand. That's And so point. we synchronized... So, so we've synchronized the organization based upon customer demand. We, we are all running off of the same schedule. We've significantly reduced WIP maybe by, I don't know, two, three, two five. Thirds. Two thirds. Two right. So we've reduced WIP by two thirds. Now we can get to the point of actually understanding where our constraints are because yeah. we are now running everything the same. Okay. I, I think. I think that that makes sense. Um, I actually, I have a funny story to tell everyone. Uh, we'll, we'll end this on a funny story about people not knowing what is going on on the production floor. So um, a, a number of years ago, um, I got a call. I, I, in, in past lives, I get lots of calls to save projects, right? You think a project should be simple, but people get into it and they're way over their head and they're over time and over budget. And so I, I get a call. It's for a multi-billion dollar company. We'll just call it over in Southeast Asia. They run a large number of lines making vegetable oil. Um, and so they wanted to go the process of building an MES, so a manufacturing execution system. We wanted to do things like um, OEE, so overall equipment effectiveness. We wanted to do some track and trace. We might have wanted to do some quality. Um, all of these very normal in food production. So as part of this, you kind of need that entire process diagram, that entire process or value stream map, as Max had talked about earlier. And we wanted to get all of this work done before people got on an airplane and flew halfway across the world, because it's always better to do the work in the comfort of your own air conditioned home than sitting on a garbage can typing on your lap. Um, So we go, they send us all of this. 
they, they didn't have answers to all the questions, but like you have enough that you can get to the 85 or 90% level, which is about as good as you get before you go to any facility. So a couple of my guys get over there and, and it's, it's a bit of a mess that the people are a little strange. Uh, the, the process is a bit of a mess. They were over there for two weeks and, and Max, I think it was day six or seven that my guy finally walked out onto the production floor and we, we learned something amazing here, Max. One, all of the information we've been working on for the last month, completely wrong. Two, <laughs> th- this group who had come in and been paid assumably millions of dollars had not walked out on the production floor once during the entire year that they've been there. That they've been in an air-conditioned room in the facility, never walked out into the line once. Uh Never walked out in the line once. Uh, so I, I think it. I think it's a lean concept, like going to the Gemba, which is yes. where you 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 live. Go look and, and see. Yeah, go go look and see, and, and and that is one of many points that that Max and I are going to hit uh, on the next show, uh, in which we go through all of Deming's fourteen points, including kind of all of the offshoots, theory of constraints, lean, six sigma, TQM, uh, kind of all of those things, uh, and talk a little bit about. Uh, the how the the name of the show came to place uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. So and, until next time, we'll see you all soon. Bye bye.